Blog Talk Radio. Liberal Fix is brought to you by Blue Push Media, news important to progressives and liberals across America. Good evening and welcome to this Friday night edition of Liberal Fix Radio. It is Friday, July 15th, and I'm your host, Keith Breckis. I'm usually broadcasting from Montana, but as many of you might know, I'm now in Cholo, Arizona, working on uh, some political races here, but um I'm also excited tonight because our guest uh, tonight is Andy Lazarus, who is a medical doctor, a primary care physician specializing in geriatrics and currently directs a group practice in Columbia, Maryland. Um, He's a medical director of several assisted living facilities and retirement communities. He's the co-author of Interpreting Health Risks and Benefits, and he is also the author of a book uh, called Curing Medicare, a doctor's view on how our healthcare system is failing older Americans and how we can fix it. And that's going to be uh, a lot of the topic of our discussion tonight. So um, without further ado, I'll introduce Andy. How are you doing this evening, Andy? Great, great, Keith. Great to be here. Wonderful. Yeah, we're excited to have you, and I'm sure our listeners will find this a very important and interesting topic. Um, I guess before we sort of jump into uh, more specific questions. Uh, maybe you could just uh, give us maybe a brief overview of, of sort of uh, what the book is about and, and why you wrote it or things like that. And, and sure, sure. Yeah, I, I've, yeah I, I've been practicing medicine for about 25 years, and I watched a lot of the changes that have occurred in the healthcare system. And, and that's mostly what prompted me to write this book because I'm seeing how a lot of the reforms right now are actually purporting to be increasing quality of medical care and cutting costs, but in a lot of ways are doing just the opposite. And so so the book is really two parts. One is it talks about what procedures, tests, medicines, and other things actually are beneficial to people as people get older and why a lot of those things that aren't beneficial are actually being pushed on people. And the the latter half of the book talks about what we can do about it. And, and, you know, I, I say in my book that actually... The, the way to fix Medicare would require about two hours of some people with common sense getting together in a room, and the solution would, would be something that patients would not only want, what most patients already stated they wanted, but also would be something that would be helpful for them medically and would be dramatically cost-saving. So I think the solution's really easy. It's just uh, people are going round and round with other ideas that aren't getting to the point. Wow, yeah, so that's that's really interesting, and, and it's too bad that people haven't sat in the room and done that, I guess. Um, we need to get them in the room. I mean, you and yeah, I in the exactly. room would, would probably be enough to do it. <laughs> Put me on the planning board. I'm there. Um, exactly. So you admit, you, you admit that you love the idea of Medicare, but uh, I guess um, you maybe touched on it a little bit, but where in broad strokes do you believe uh, Medicare has gone wrong? Yeah, the problem with Medicare is not so much that it's really gone wrong. It's just that when it was created in 1965, it hasn't really changed very much. And in 1965, it, it was it was absolutely a lifesaver. The, the fact it even was passed is is almost miraculous in this country, when nobody can get any health care, um, even the most minor health care reform passed. 
And um, so we, we owe Lyndon Johnson a, a debt of gratitude for that. But it was passed um, by compromising with the American Medical Association, and um, w- which at that time was actually a powerful group fiercely opposed to uh, setting up Medicare. And the, the compromises right now are, are getting us in big trouble because doctors and hospitals hold a lot of power uh, under Medicare. And the cost of care, the amount of procedures, the amount of tests, the amount of medicines, the amount of diagnoses we have now compared to 1965 have just exploded. So people are just, doctors are incented to do a lot of tests, give a lot of medicines, you know, put stents in people's arteries. Um, when, when There's a lot of evidence these things don't work, but the, the way Medicare pays doctors is the more of those things they do, um, the better they get paid and the more patients think they're providing thorough care. So, so Medicare is, is, is facilitating um, very bad medicine right now, um, only because the medical landscape has changed so dramatically. Interesting. And, and I know you mentioned, uh, you briefly mentioned the American Medical Association. And at first, of course, they fought the creation of Medicare, offering, I guess, an alternative that they called elder care in its place. Um, and now, um, by contrast, I guess the AMA is fighting to keep Medicare intact. Um, why do you think they did an about face on, on Medicare? Well, well, the AMA and the doctors, doctors and hospitals in general wrung a lot of concessions out of, uh, out of the government um, when they created Medicare. And really, it's a, it's a bounty for doctors, especially specialist doctors, who um, can do whatever they want. Um, you know, they can... Uh, they could do procedures. You know, I, I mentioned cardiac stents, so I'll use that as an example. Cardiologists um, can uh, have a patient come in who's in pretty good health and say, well, let's do a stress test on you. We know, and I, and I talk about this in my book, we know that stress tests are very um, uh, erroneous tests most of the time. They don't predict who's going to get a heart attack, and when they're abnormal, they don't predict who's going to get a heart attack. But sometimes they'll find blockages in the heart. And the cardiologist, the same cardiologist who got paid to do the test and who ordered the test, can now order a stent to be put in the heart. They're not required to tell the patient the true risks and benefits of the stent, something we talk about in the book, and the benefits are negligible. But they could put in a stent. To do that stent, they'll get $2,000. Medicare will pay $40,000 because it's paying a lot of other players in the whole process. So, so the, the incentive to do bad things, to do things that are wasteful, um, is just built into the Medicare system, and, and it really benefits doctors, especially specialist doctors who do procedures. The, the amount that doctors are paid uh, is determined by a small group in the AMA, um, and it's, it's, a, it's a group of mostly specialist doctors, and they're the ones who decide that a doctor who puts in the stink gets $2,000, and a doctor who discusses the pros and cons of doing that, which would be me, would get more like $100. So, you know, all this is not free market, and it's, you know, it's not been done rationally. It's been done to benefit the doctors, and, and uh, the way Medicare was constructed, that was actually permitted. So, yeah, d- doctors don't want to see that end. They're doing really well under this system. Yeah, it sounds like it, and I know you, you contend that, uh, Medicare's measure of what good care should look like, um, what they, I guess, call quality indicators, often conspires to derail what, what you and, and also what uh, your patients think is best. Um, how, how does it do that or how so? 
Yeah, I mean, a lot of what you hear now um, about how Medicare is fixing itself is to be promoting quality. And by quality, it means that we as doctors are going to be giving report cards and we're going to be judged on how we uh, have certain numbers fixed. By numbers, I mean, is your blood pressure below 120? Are you on a statin cholesterol medicine if your cholesterol is a certain level? Have you had a bone density test, and are you on medicines for that? There are hundreds of these things that we're going to be judged on. So these are quality indicators, and they're very generic. So what's good for you might be also expected to be good for my 105-year-old patient with dementia. And and what a lot of my patients um, need uh, is not to get their blood pressure below 120. In fact, if they get their blood pressure below 120, they'll fall on their face, they'll be dizzy, they'll be confused, they'll be tired. And, you know, different people need different things. So individualized health care and also patient choice is all being compromised because of these quality measures. So, so in an attempt to impose quality on, on doctors and patients in a, in a very generic way, Medicare is actually conspiring to do just the opposite. And, and if we did practice quality care, if we, you know, if we were able to talk to our patients and find out what they want, give them accurate information, you know, tell them what are the pros and cons of a mammogram, you know, not it's just your time for an annual mammogram, but talk to them about it. A lot of patients decide not to go the aggressive route, and it would save the system a lot of money without uh, any compromise in outcome. That, that's been shown over and over again in studies. So, so by, you know, by imposing this on us, it's actually costing Medicare more money. But more importantly, it's taking all the power away from patients. And, and you're getting the doctor who looks at that computer screen all day and just types in stuff so we can just let Medicare know what we're doing and check some boxes off. That's kind of what most of you, most of you guys who are the patients are seeing right now. Wow. Yeah, and, and uh, it sounds like there's a little bit of a, in addition to sort of a over-reliance on maybe <laughs> – quantitative um, reporting and stuff, it also sort of sounds like in some cases they're doing sort of a one-size-fits-all kind that's of thing. That's exactly right. The same. Yeah. So right, and giving patients good. no options. You know, the patient, it's my, so if I get judged, um, if uh, if you just get a, take a statin cholesterol medicine, and there are a lot of side effects to those, and there's some people they help more than others, but I'm judged if you take it. So if I give you the choice and talk to you about the pros and cons of a statin cholesterol medicine, it's possible and maybe even probable that you won't take the medicine, and then I'm going to get an F on my report card. So best that I not even discuss it with you. Best that I do a one-size-fit-all and, and you know, force this poor man who can hardly walk to take this medicine because Medicare tells me I should, even though I know it causes increased leg weakness and can cause increased fatigue. Um, so, yeah, one-size-fits-all is very dangerous, and, and it's not what patients want. You know, patients want to talk to their doctors and, and actually get actual information and have a discussion about what makes best sense for them. Each, one, each person I've found over my 25-year practice is completely different in, in what they want and expect uh, in terms of health care. Some people want absolutely nothing. Some people want everything. Um, and most people are somewhere in the middle in their own, their own health conditions determine what they actually want. And that's all being stripped away, unfortunately, because, again, there's a better way, a much easier way to, to handle this, to handle true quality. Yeah, that makes sense. And, uh, yeah, and I think having patients involved just to a great extent into how they're taken care of, I think, makes sense, especially if the patients are given 
reasonable alternatives and able to sort of understand what the pluses and minuses of every kind of procedure or everything that they might be um, expected to receive in terms of care is. Um, yeah, well, which, we, thing, which we can do, yeah. Oh, go ahead. Yeah, I mean, we, we're... We we are capable. If you guys, if you read the newspaper and you see an article about healthcare, it'll almost always say something like, you know, lowering blood pressure below 120 will 30 percent of people live longer. They, they throw out these percentages, but when you actually put that in real numbers to real patients, it means that if you lower the blood pressure below that, maybe two out of a thousand people benefit, and maybe 50 over a thousand people get dizzy and tired. And so those are real numbers um, that most people want to see. So, so even the press is, is print, printing information that, that's not very helpful in doctors and patients making decisions. What we know is when the doctors and patients make decisions using real numbers and actually having a conversation rather than using protocol medicine, the cost of care re- is reduced. Because, again, people are, are being pushed to do things that are unnecessary primarily because it pays a lot of people for them to go that route. If if we take that incentive away and we actually encourage conversations, which is just what patients want, then we're going to see already immediate savings in Medicare outlays. And we're not going to deny patients anything. You know, we're not going to put restrictions on them. We're going to give them more choice. And that's that's mostly what I advocate is increased patient choice and increased discourse um, as one mechanism to save Medicare a lot of money. Too, it's yeah, too easy, right? Like you know, I mean, it's it's what we should be doing, and it, it's absolutely amazing. Most people, you know, don't realize that we're not doing that, and we're encouraged not to do that. But it would be an easy first step that that no one would no one would fight that. Yeah, and from what I understand too, it makes sense. I mean, it seems like something that if people understood it, that there shouldn't or wouldn't be, or at least there shouldn't be like some kind of partisan divide, because I think. Everybody, whether liberal, conservative, or moderate, would would think that um, uh, a less expensive program that does better at caring for patients would be, I think, something that everybody would agree on as as a good thing, or almost everybody. Yeah, I mean, it it shouldn't be a partisan divide, but it's going to be a partisan divide. Because anytime (laughs) one side of the aisle says anything about Medicare, they're going to be attacked by the other side of the aisle as being... uh, being opposed to old people. It's just, it's Medicare's political dynamite. So even if one side of the aisle comes up with something that originated on the other side of the aisle, I mean, that was true of Obamacare. Obamacare is essentially a Republican idea passed by a Democrat, and then the Republicans attacked it. That, that, that the, the politics of Medicare is what really gets in the way. And, and also there are a lot of special interest groups. So although, you know, to, to give an example, um, if Someone comes to my office, they have some dementia, they're sick, they have a pneumonia, they might need some fluids, they might need some help. I have no way to keep those people at home. Medicare will not pay for any home care. We know from a recent article this week that the cost of treating them at home is one-seventh of the cost of treating them in the hospital. And we also know that the outcome is better. Their chance of surviving is better if they're treated at home. And we also know that about 85% of older people would prefer to be treated at home. And yet Medicare will not pay for home treatment. Again, this, this could be a choice that patients can make. And if, they, you know, if patients are allowed to make this choice, then Medicare would save billions and billions of dollars. But you have special interests involved. The hospitals are paying a lot of money to congressmen 
to make sure this doesn't happen. So even though there's there are sensible approaches, there's just a lot of politics and a lot of special interests that are getting in the way of that, which again is is true of everything in this country. And that's why, you know, that's why another reason I wrote the book to to kind of empower patients and and everyone to be able to see see what's going on, to see what choices they should be having, and to talk about it, even even if just talking about it in the doctor's office, you know, to empower themselves when they go to see their doctor, to to demand of their doctor to to tell them actually what the real risks and benefits are and what choices they have. You know, that's, that's a start because once we get into the politics of it, it, it becomes very frustrating. Sure, absolutely. So we got to go lower level. <laughs> that's, that's where you got to yeah, start. Start kind of at the micro level. Exactly, to... <laughs> which can make sure. a big difference. Yeah, and often even like with political change, it often sort of starts from the ground up and so um, yeah individual conversations at the doctor's office level if there's enough of them it can actually over time probably influence the political process too if enough people are kind of asking the right questions and and putting pressure on the right people so to speak I guess exactly Um, because those are people who vote so I mean that's the way to counter special interest groups right do that (laughs) and then I know one study estimated that um, I guess some 30,000 elderly Americans die each year due to excessive care. Um, maybe you could elaborate on that. I mean, excessive care to some people might sound like an oxymoron. Um, so um, can you maybe explain what that is? Yeah, I mean, there's there's a whole culture of medical care in this country that has been spelled out that the more we do, the more we look, the more we probe, the more we treat, the, the better your numbers look, that the better, the more healthy you'll be. So, for instance, you know, if we can get your blood pressure low enough, your sugar low enough, your cholesterol low enough, that you'll be a healthy person. But we know the more we throw medicines into people and fix those numbers, that the the people who we're doing that to often do worse. They not only feel worse, but they actually live shorter. You know, a perfect example is the one we've talked about already, which are these heart stents. You know, it sounds logical. You have a blockage in your artery. A doctor puts in a metal stent and opens up the artery, you think, wow, that makes sense. I'm going to live longer. But, you know, the studies show just the opposite. The studies show that actually people who undergo that procedure compared to just taking some simple medicines will have many more side effects, uh, life-threatening side effects, compared to people who don't do that procedure, and that that, that procedure does not save any lives. It doesn't prevent a heart attack. It doesn't save lives. So it's, it's counterintuitive. And, and, you know, I sit, I sit with my – I gave a talk on this today and explained to um, a, a room full of 100 elderly people just why that's the case. You know, why, why doesn't a stent work? And, and by the end, they understood it. It made sense to them. Um, and, and, you know, I think that that kind of, uh, you know, explanation is not something that only doctors can understand. Too often, we as doctors just tell people what to do and assume that patients can't understand that. But when we tell them about the risks of treatment, when we tell them, yes, we could send you for a screen to help prevent lung cancer, and after five years we might uh, prevent five, uh, I think the number is three lung cancer deaths out of 1,000 people who get it, but that about 500 people who get this will have false positives and will have to have other tests, biopsies, end up in the hospital, popping their lungs, you know, all sorts of stuff that is bad. That, there, that nothing nothing is simple in medicine. There's always choices. So over-treatment can lead to a lot of problems. Too many medicines, too many tests, 
too many procedures, people don't necessarily live longer. In fact, studies show in areas of the country where there are more specialists and where there's more hospitalization and where there are more tests, that the outcome is worse, that people don't do as well, and the cost of care is tremendously higher. So, yeah, overtreatment is something that a lot of people now are looking at. There have been a lot of books written about that recently. We know about it. It just goes against kind of what everyone already believes, which is the more is better, and especially as people get older. The body takes care of itself, and we as doctors often just get in the way, and we cause a lot of problems. A lot of my patients who have had this happen to them, um, they've gone to a hospital. They would have been better off at home. They end up dying in the hospital after, you know, twenty, thirty, fifty thousand dollars of testing and procedures. They actually, their families actually believe after this, they say, "Wow, it's a good thing they were in the hospital because they were really sick." And I say, "But they weren't when they went in the hospital. You know, this was all caused by everything that happened in the hospital." So when you look at the thirty thousand excess of deaths, there are about a hundred thousand excessive deaths from medical errors, about 100,000 excessive deaths from hospital-inquired infections. And that's like two airplanes going down every day. The amount of uh, death we are causing uh, just by over-treating people. And, and not only that, the Institute of Medicine estimates that about a trillion dollars is being spent on absolutely wasteful medical care. Medical care that not only doesn't help people, but that potentially hurts people. Um, that's a third of the budget is is doing things that we know don't help people. So it, so it's a huge problem. It, it is the problem um, that we have to face. And again, the easy solutions to it that are just being talked around, but it, it's very fixable. But we first have to admit that there's a problem. That's the that's the first step, and then we can go from there. Yeah, and, but it uh, is very counterintuitive, right? I mean. You, you always think that the more you do, the you know, lower the blood pressure, you'll be better. And in fact, there's what's called a J-shaped curve, which means as you lower it more, your death rate goes up. Um, but you know, it, people don't believe that. It it's, it's, takes a lot of explanation, and then ultimately people understand. But you know, mo- most of my patients are very intelligent people, um, and, and they they are skeptical too about all these tests and procedures. They've just been kind of sold a bill of goods that they're supposed to do all this stuff and just listen to the doctor. And when, when you kind of tell them what their choices are and what, what the truth is about each procedure, most of them opt just to take a minimalist approach, and they feel much better because of it. It actually helps them feel better. So, so it's, I mean, it's, it's really um, a good outcome when we finally understand that too much is not good. Yeah, and I, I can see the impulse. Like you said, it is somewhat counterintuitive because I think my inclination um, – is both of the things you kind of mentioned. My inclination is all of the things being equal. I want a minimalist approach, but when I'm actually in the presence of a physician, um, I tend to kind of defer to their, you know, supposed superior knowledge so that I just assume if they're saying I need something, I need it, you know, but, but I'd like to right, be given the right. options and alternatives because, like you said, I'm an intelligent person. If somebody could give you the the costs and benefits and different things and kind of lay it out there, then I could probably make a reasonably informed decision and I'd probably go for a minimalist approach on most things, but there might be certain situations where I'd be, yeah, I think I do want that, but I don't want this, this, and this, you know? Exactly. I mean, th- those are those are individual choices and that's your every right to do. And, and you know, I sadly, and not, not to knock my profession because, you know, my profession is made up of a lot of really, really good people, but it's amazing how many 
of how many doctors don't understand the actual risks and benefits. It's not something they're taught in medical school. Um, there's no statistics course that actually talks about these uh, falsified numbers, these these deceptive numbers that are printed everywhere by, you know, drug companies, by newspapers, um, by hospitals, um, and so most doctors are are really really themselves don't fully understand the actual risks and benefits, and, and that's and that's why um, you know as as a patient you know you really should push it. I, I've seen some some people um, actually do that I, at, recently and. And boy, they felt empowered. And, and when they started pushing it a little bit, um, they realized that the person they were talking to, who was this great surgeon or this great cardiologist, really knew a lot less than they, they would have expected and was forced to, to look things up and, and have an intelligent conversation. So yeah, it's, it's really important to advocate for yourself and not, not make any assumptions that the doctor sitting in front of you um, really knows what's best for you. Yeah. Isn't that scary? But I, I mean, it's a little scary. But I mean, you, you just you know you you got to go in there thinking about yourself and and uh, just understand that um, you know you need to know you need to have enough information to make a decision. You can't just have someone make it for you. Right. And I know uh, kind of bringing it back to politics. Or I guess it's all about politics. I mean, at some right. level, everything right. is political. But I mean, <laughs> uh, to bring it sort of to maybe electoral politics a bit, Obama is, is only the most recent president to, president to have his health care reform run into roadblocks. I mean, uh, a lot of the stuff that he tried to do. And then um, Truman, uh, LBJ, and Clinton before him met with uh, strenuous resistance as well. Um, tell us a bit about how their efforts, including the pushback they received, characterize our evolving relationship with health, choice, aging, and lobbying efforts. Yeah, I think it's, and it did. It did start with the big push started with Truman. There, there were attempts even before Truman. And remember, it was around the time of Truman, uh, a little before that, that the British uh, enacted their national health care system, and virtually. Um, uh, all other modernized countries have a national health care system where they guarantee people uh, insurance. Um, but but Americans uh, are very different than the rest of the world. And and this is the problem. The, the problem with Truman's system, the problem with Clinton, you know, Bill Clinton tried this also. Um, Johnson got it through but had to make major compromises. And uh, President Obama, unfortunately, what he did pass was just laden with compromises. The, the problem is people do not want to be told what to do by someone uh, in the government or in a private industry. This was true of HMOs as well um, when President Nixon tried to institute this HMO movement. And what that means is something called rationing of care, that if you want to test, if you want to see a certain doctor, that you have to clear that with some person who you don't know who they are, and they will tell you, no, you can only, you can't see that cardiologist, or you can only see them once, um, and that infuriates people. And, and that's why the HMO movement never took off, and that's why every time one of these healthcare systems comes up, everyone screams socialized medicine, because the fear is that someone, some big brother up above, is going to tell them what to do. And in the end, even though they need their knee replaced. They're not going to be able to get their knee replaced, or they'll get it replaced in a year. And they hear horror stories from, you know, Canada and, and England and Germany about how these things work. That's really what derails the programs. I think if we're if we um, as reformers 
are going to fix Medicare, which certainly it needs to be fixed or it's going to go bankrupt, then we have to do it in a way that does not uh, include rationing of care. That, and, that's, and that's why I take the approach I do, um, which is we have to do it in a way that rather than telling patients what they can't do, we have to tell patients that they have choice. We have to give them choice of hospital or home. We have to give them choice of getting a procedure or not getting a procedure. We have to, we have to make it so they could pick which one they do um, and not tell them what, which one's right. And, and I really believe, and there are a lot of studies to back this up, that if, if, you, gave, if you give most people accurate information, they will pick the, the route that's both beneficial to them and much less expensive to the system. Most people don't want to die in an intensive care unit. And 25% of Medicare's budget is paid to hospitals and intensive care units for people to die there. Um, 25%. Uh, you know, you take away that 25%, Medicare is going to last another 150 years. So, you know, that's what's derailed these movements before. And we have to learn from that and not go down the same road again and start telling people what they can and can't do. It's all about choice. I think that's the way to make this successful. Yeah, and I think uh, most people in uh – support choice. I mean, you know, obviously that can mean a lot of different things and the word can sometimes be maybe misused or, or, <laughs> or it could like be, that, but I it, mean, could be it means a lot of things to a lot of, but I mean, it, the way I define it is that a patient has the choice of what direction they want to go in healthcare and whichever direction they pick, Medicare is going to pay for that. But the, the assumption is that they're going to be given good information and that they're going to have those options. You know, right now the fact that they can't be treated at home means that they don't have choice. Medicare is not giving them the choice. The fact that someone with dementia can go to as many specialists as they want to go to, can get as many head MRIs as they want, can get as many medicines that don't work as they want, but is not able to get some home support, some caregiver support, is not able to go to a daycare center, not able to get physical exercise, all of which are crucial and what people with dementia and their families want, Medicare will not pay for any of those things. That, that means they have no choice. So, so we want to give people the option of doing these things. And, and you know, most people that I know with dementia will, will, would take that route, would take um, a route where they, where they get help, not, not the route where they're just getting a lot of tests and seeing a lot of specialists. So, yeah, so, so choice is something that's not built into the system right now. And if we did build it in there, I think, not only would people embrace that, but it, it would be enough to save the whole system. Yeah, and so that obviously would be a good choice based on, I mean, what we know it seems like. Um, so for our listeners, if you just joined us, our guest uh, tonight is Andy Lazarus, a uh, med- medical doctor who's also the author of Curing Medicare, a doctor's view on how our healthcare system is failing older Americans and how we can fix it. And um, I guess uh, we're talking a little bit at this stage, uh, a little bit we mentioned Obama, and I know while you supported the Affordable Care Act, you contend that its regulations are now strangling geriatric care. Uh, how how so? Yeah, I mean, I, you got to give our president some credit for, for giving it a try. And and he did expand sure, right. coverage to a lot of people. Um, and, and anytime you expand coverage, that that's laudable. But, again, the, the compromise that was reached was that we were now going to be grading doctors based on these quality measures that we talked about. And that, that's the big part of um, the Affordable Care Act that, is, uh, that has been strangling us. So right now, you know, when I, when I see a patient, rather than listening to what the patient really wants to talk about, I've got to sit in front of a computer. 
I have to type in a set script of things. I have to tell the patient that they're due for this, they're due for that, we got to put them on this medicine, we got to get this test. Even though the patient just wants to talk about their knee hurting and the fact that they got a bug bite, you know, I, I, I've got to talk about these other things. So, you know, that that is largely coming from uh, the Affordable Care Act and some of the Medicare reforms. Also, the um, you know, the Affordable Care Act, rather than identifying some of the real big problems that are costing uh healthcare so much, such as hospitalization, it's picked on other things like home health care, medical equipment. So so it's made it much more difficult for a doctor like me um, to get patients uh, the, the services and the equipment they need so they can actually stay at home and stay out of the hospital. The amount of paperwork for me to get some, someone as simple as a wheelchair can take me an hour to do. And, and almost always it gets rejected and I have to do it again. And that was not the case before um, Obamacare. So it's really, it's really built up this, you know, it, it's, it's exactly what people feared uh, would occur, which was that there's going to be a lot more red tape and it's going to be a lot more difficult to do simple things. But if I want to send someone to the hospital, if I want to send them to a specialist, if I want to put in a stent, it has not done anything to slow that down. So it's really, it's really focused on things that unfortunately have caused uh, geriatric doctors like myself um, to take our focus away from the patient and what the patient really needs. And, yeah, that, that, that's been frustrating. And, and I'm not the only one saying that. And, and that's, not, that's not a partisan issue at all. I mean, those of us uh, who are more liberal um, feel that way also. We feel like this is something that can be fixed. But, but you know, again, we, we don't see that happening now. That's why we're advocating for a change in direction. What, what Medicare and the Affordable Care Act are starting in 2017 is just a lot more of this stuff. And, and about 10% of our salary is going to be based on whether we pass our report card um, with these protocols. So it's actually getting worse, and, and we just want to stop it before we, it gets too, we get too deep into this. And we want to start talking about more sensible things we can do, which could also be part of you know the Affordable Care Act. I mean, that could all be incorporated in there and I hope it is. The Affordable Care Act is very flexible. So there are it can change direction. It can do different things. So that you know we're hoping that's what happens. Yeah, and hopefully they'll change it in a in a positive direction um with with the right people maybe making those changes. Um and you suggest that many of the prescriptions doctors uh make for the elderly, be they for medications or be they procedures have little little clinical evidence to support their use. Um, how can that be, or why? Is yeah, that? how could that be with with this entire network of um, <laughs> of studies and and uh, you know specialists and and academic doctors doing all these studies? Well, well, you know, first of all, vir- virtually no. First of all, most studies are are sponsored by drug companies. I mean, that's that's something that the government has punted down to to the drug companies. So the drug companies do about 85% of clinical studies, and they pick and choose who they want to put in their study. Um, they want to make that study's outcome, uh, you know, as positive as possible. If the study's outcome does not go their way, it's often never published. Um, but if it does go their way, then they, you know, it ends up on the front page of the New York Times or the Washington Post, and um, people think there's a new miraculous medicine out there. So, so for that to happen, they exclude elderly people. 
there are very few studies with any elderly people, and the elderly people who are in studies are often what we call clean. That means they have no other health problems and there are no other medicines. So, so that's the first problem is that we have a real lack of knowledge of, of what actually happens when you know elderly people who are on a lot of other medicines start taking, you know, Zeralto or, or Pravastatin. You know, how is it going to interact with everything else? We know from our own experience that people who are on 10 or 15 medicines, which is pretty common for older people, have difficulties. You know, that that these medicines interact with each other. That each medicine does not work as it's supposed to because it's having it's interacting with the other medicines that even the medicines what they're supposed to do is not even necessary that the body doesn't need for instance to have its cholesterol brought down when when someone's 92 years old you know that's not going to help them but it might cause muscle damage so so you know we we do have a lack of information but what information we do have um it's virtually universal in saying that most of the medicines we give people as they get older are not very effective and are potentially harmful. Um, and as we pile medicine on top of medicine, that, that negative effect actually accelerates. So, so we know that from experience. And, and I don't know if we'll, we'll ever get some good studies to show that because the studies will all show that these don't work. So, so nobody's sponsoring those studies. Um, and that, that's kind of the dilemma that we have. Yeah, and uh, speaking to uh, of negative impacts, I guess recognizing the negative impact of hospital visits on geriatric patients. Some hospitals have created acute care units for elders, um, ACEs as they're sometimes called by acronym. How do they differ from conventional ICUs or intensive care units, and what have the results been with the ACEs? Yeah, you know, a- ACE units are, are a step in the right direction. You know, e- even people who are admitted to ACE units often could would be better off served at home uh, rather than being in the hospital. But given that that's not an option, an ACE unit is usually staffed by people who are um, primary care doctors like myself um, who do a lot of geriatric work rather than when you walk into a regular hospital, you're going to see a series of specialists, each of whom takes care of one little slice of your body. The idea of an ACE unit is you're going to be seen by more generalists who are who know how to you know how drugs and procedures and tests uh, can cause problems in older people. So it tends to be a you know a much more limited testing environment. People are not tied down to their beds. When when I have uh, elderly people with dementia, even mild dementia, go to the hospital, often they're tied down to their beds. They have catheters put into their bladder. Um, they're force-fed. You know, th- this kind of stuff is dangerous and demeaning and, and you know, causes, causes horrible outcomes. In ACE units, that tends not to happen because, again, you're, you're dealing with, with staff, with nurses, with aides, with doctors and nurse practitioners who are all very um, attuned to how to help someone with dementia short of doing those draconian, horrible things to them. So, yeah, ACE units um, have been shown to have um, actually a better outcome uh, for older older people when they do have to go to the hospital. <laughs> Most people who are discharged from ACE units uh, end up going home and staying home. Uh, there are a lot of people discharged from the hospital end up coming back or who are worse off once they go home. So so it is, it is a step. And there are also uh, med- some uh, elderly um, emergency rooms that are popping up, geriatric emergency rooms that, that do similar things that, you know, they're, People are coming in. They have bigger rooms. They allow the families to sit with them. They have a more homey environment. 
They have nurses and aides who are much more attuned to how to talk to elderly people. They're, you know, they're not snapping at them. Um, you know, just simple things like that can make the hospital a better experience. I, I tell some stories in my book about some of my patients and, and what's happened to them in the hospital, and, and you know, it's, it's just, just horrible. It's, it's really the worst part of my job watching an elderly person, especially someone with some dementia, go into a hospital. And I do everything in my power to keep them out of there, um, which unfortunately is, is not enough because when an elderly person gets sick, that's where they have to go because that's the only place that they will get for. Yeah. And then I know uh, you mentioned nursing homes as well. Um, you know from experience there, some of the most highly regulated institutions in the country, how does that regulation impact patient care? Does it promote or obstruct it? You know, the, the, the regulations, are, you know, as with all regulations, there are good regulations and bad regulations. And, you know, certainly we don't want to have a nursing home that's mistreating people, that's neglecting them, that's not feeding them. Um, but on the other hand, you know, the, the regulations have gotten completely out of control. So what a lot of the regulations do now is promote excessive care. So when you go to a nursing home, you get blood work all the time, you get your blood pressure checked all the time, your sugar checked all the time. If you have a cough, you'll get an x-ray. You'll be thrown to the hospital if there's even something you know, minor going on with you. So, yeah, it's actually getting in the way of what we call sensible. Yeah, for sure. And then uh, I know uh, many, many medical economists sort of dream of a European healthcare, European-style healthcare systems in this country. Um, but you suggest that some successful models exist right here. Um, could you give us some examples? Looks like your, it looks like our caller's call has been dropped, um, or the our guest call um, got dropped from the phone here. So we'll see if we can't get him back. Um, again, our guest um, tonight is Andy Lazarus. He's a medical doctor. He's also the author of Curing Medicare, a doctor's view on how our healthcare system is failing older Americans and how we can fix it. Um, and so he's been talking a lot about um, some of the dilemmas or some of the things that in the Medicare system that maybe create the wrong incentives or, or doctors, for example, are encouraged to provide excessive care um, things that are more expensive for the patient and uh, take away some of the patient choice. Um, so we've been discussing some of that. And um, uh, unfortunately, it looks like the phone line got disconnected here, but uh, we'll see if he calls back in and uh, we can uh, continue with the interview. Um, the first 45 minutes have been very interesting, and we'll try to get him back on for a few more if he's able to call back in. Um, so again, the uh, name of the author is Andy Lazarus. And the title of the book is Curing Medicare, a Doctor's View on How Our Healthcare System is Failing Older Americans and How We Can Fix It. Um, we'll also try to put a link to his book on our Liberal Fix page so that uh, people can access it there, have a chance to uh, read it and check it out. I'm sure some of, the, some of the aspects of it might be controversial to some listeners and some of it might be pretty straightforward, but... Uh, Certainly a compelling and engaging read and something that um, many people might be interested in that kind of states some of the, uh, maybe some of the problems with our current healthcare system of which of course there are many, but um, this one particularly 
um, deals with the problems that um, I guess older Americans are confronted with um, when not given healthcare choices and when given a lot of medical procedures that are unnecessary or um, not very helpful and that actually increase the cost to our healthcare system um, as well as uh, lowering the quality of life or lowering the quality of health care for the people who receive it. And I think we might have Andy back. Um, Andy, I'm back. I don't know what happened, but I'm Okay, back. yeah, I'm not sure. So the call dropped, but I, <laughs> since I've been in politics, I, I could filibuster for a little while, so I was just discussing some of the things we already talked about. <laughs> good, um, good. Sorry about that. That's so, technology yeah. for you. Yeah, no kidding. But uh, very, yeah, so far very engaging and very interesting stuff. I guess the question I uh, left off on was probably many medical economists dream of European healthcare, European style healthcare systems. But you suggest that some successful models exist right here. Um, for example, what would those be? Yeah, the, 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 you know, like we're talking about the European system work here um, because of uh, the idea of rationing and telling people what to do. Yeah, the, I wouldn't say there are any models here that are um, completely successful. There are a lot we could learn from. Um, the, the VA health system, which is constantly criticized, actually has one of the highest satisfactions of any healthcare system. It's extremely innovative in providing home care. So, so a lot of people can actually stay at home and be treated there. Um, is able to save money, has better outcomes than the private healthcare system, even though they're dealing with a super group of patients. Um, so so that's, that's an example, you know, by the government, we could look at and say, what, what's working there? They, they're much more innovative and much less political than Medicare. And, and there are also some Medicare HMOs. We, we talked about HMOs uh, a little bit, but I was, I was part of one at one point where um, in a place called Erickson Retirement Community, where um, Medicare would pay us to basically manage people and a lot of the rules that Medicare imposes on people such as not being able to treat them at home um, to have you know having these clinical uh, these these clinical quality indicators not exist under that method and Medicare is experimenting um, with something called accountable care organizations now of, of which I'm a member and ultimately you know, that might be moving in the direction of the HMO. So people like me who are members of these organizations, uh, we all collectively take care of patients, and if we can do a good job of taking care of them, such as costing Medicare less money, then Medicare will allow us to do things that they don't allow people to do now, including home care, including having nurses come visit you at your home, um, including having, you know, care coordination. So I think they're using... You know, accountable care organizations or CEOs, which is which is something that came out of uh, Obamacare. They're using some of the lessons from our own country, and again, giving people more choice. So I see glimmers of hope that you know that, that maybe at least on a small level, that we are using things that have worked here. You know, looking at the BA system, looking at the HMO movement, and learning what's what the problems were those, and trying to fix them. So. You know, on a small level, we are moving in that direction. Oh, yeah, at least that's encouraging, and, and so it's good to see that there are things that we can sort of look at here to perhaps improve upon and use to guide us in, in the right direction. And, and I know critical to the sex, success of any Medicare reform, you 
argues the involvement of primary care and geriatric physicians as well as their patients. Uh, why have a lot of reform efforts not included these critical stakeholders already? <laughs> that's, a, that's a very good question. Um, you know, the, the primary care doctors that are asked on health care reforms are not people like me. You know, I see patients five days a week. Um, you know, I, I'm a, just a regular doctor. The people who are doing this are mostly uh, healthcare economists or, or they're academic doctors who see patients rarely. Um, and, you know, people like me and you are not asked to talk about this. And you know, I don't know why. I think that, you know, there's a whole primary care community out there that is extremely frustrated. Primary care doctors are the most highly burnt out group of doctors out there by every study. Uh, primary care doctors are the lowest paid doctors by a lot. Um, it's, it's not as though they're, they're making um, similar amounts of money to other doctors. And, and, and I say that, um, that they're still making a, a lot of money, primary care doctors, so no one should feel sorry for them. But, you know, cardiologists are making double what they make or triple. So, so there's, you know, there's a huge gap, and, and so nobody's going into primary care. It's about 10, 15 to 20% of medical students go into primary care now. Um, the amount of primary care doctors is dwindling. And like I said before, you know, we know that in areas of the country with fewer specialists and more primary care doctors, the outcomes are better, patient satisfaction is higher, and the cost is lower. And so because we're becoming such a specialized society, um, the, the specialists are really determining what what is paid for and what's not paid for. I told you the, the um, AMA determines doctor salary. There's a small committee called the RUC Committee on the AMA that determines what doctors get paid. And there's virtually no primary care presence on that committee. It's all specialists. So, yeah, so you know, we, we as primary care doctors are left out of the entire equation. And yet, if we're going to have a successful effective patient-centered healthcare system, we should have in this country just the opposite of what we have now. We should have about 80% primary care doctors. And Medicare can do that. Med Medicare has total control, total financial control over who gets trained in what. They, they pay for doctor training. They pay billions of dollars a year for doctors to be trained. That's taxpayer money. So they can, they can change that around. And they certainly can easily make the salaries a little more equitable and then, then you'll see that the primary care doctors, um, more people will go into primary care, and primary care doctors will have a much bigger role in our health care system. And that, again, that's going to save the system a lot of money and increase patient satisfaction. Yeah, and, and it, like you mentioned, I guess it's unfortunate because right now the incentive is for people sort of to go into specialist care, which which is uh, leads to the kind of over you know, over right. over yeah. care kind of element of the system. And so if they could make the pay of primary care physicians higher and, and kind of reduce that imbalance so that we have more people going into primary care rather than going into being specialists, that would probably help everybody or at least help the patients for sure. It would help the patients because patients right now are being carved up into their individual organs and not being taken care of as, as whole individuals. And, you know, again, the, the specialists are paid more if they do more tests on you, if they do more procedures on you. Um, their incentive, they're not bad people, the specialists. But their incentives are, are just to do things that are very invasive and aggressive. If they didn't do that, they'd get paid the same as I get paid. 
um, which would be appalling to them. I think I get paid just fine, <laughs> but but to them that, that they wouldn't be happy with that. I, I knew a cardiologist, um, the smartest cardiologist I ever worked with, um, who actually got kicked out of his group because he wasn't ordering enough tests. He wasn't making enough money. He was giving patients choice, and to a cardiologist, that that is that is the wrong thing to do, um, because again, then they're kind of just seeing people in the office and talking to them, and then they get paid like me, God forbid. Um, so yeah, there's too many specialists and too much uh, focus on procedures. Again, if instead of paying primary care doctors more, which I don't advocate, um, I think we're doing fine. I, I think paying less for procedures is really the way to go. So instead of you know a doctor getting two thousand dollars to put a stent in someone's artery, they should be getting more like three or four hundred dollars, and then they might decide to have that conversation with the patient instead of just pushing the stent when it really doesn't need to be done. Yeah, that makes sense to me. I mean, if you kind of change the scale there, then um, they'd be less likely to, to uh, go for a procedure if it's if it's kind of a dubious procedure, if, if there isn't a lot, um, <laughs> a big incentive yeah, when, to I'm, do it or something. Kind of. When I have a conversation with my patients about stents, um, and I talk to them about the pros and cons, I have no, I don't care what answer they pick. You know, I, I have no incentive for them to get it or to not get it. And I think that that's what needs to happen. I, I think the person who has the conversation with that patient should not have a financial stake in them picking one answer, which is get the stent. So, yeah, we, so we have to lower the amount of money that doctors get for basically being technicians and reward doctors more for thinking and talking to their patients um, because really that, that makes a bigger difference ultimately in helping a patient make right decisions that are best for them. And, that, and that's not rewarded now. That What's rewarded now is just let's not talk to our patients and figure that out. Let's just do stuff. You know, let's do as much stuff as we can. So, yeah, it's, again, simple. Everything I say is simple. It really is simple to fix that. I, I talk about that in my book in, in the last chapter, how simple all this would be um, if we had some intelligent reformers <laughs> who, who, are, who are doing this. Or, or I shouldn't even say that because a lot of reformers are very intelligent if we just didn't have it so politicized um, and so many sure. special interests. Yeah. Yeah, no, I, I think you're absolutely right. I mean, <laughs> the solution is simple, but there's a lot of, uh, I guess, political roadblocks to it or, or just sort of, you know, ideological yeah. roadblocks. A lot, a lot of people don't people want it to change. Here. Yeah, people <laughs> like it just the way it is. That, that, a lot of people are doing quite well the way it is right now. Yeah, and they're often the ones who are in a position to sort of make decisions or influence the decision makers. So. Exactly. We can't. Primary care doctors actually have no organization that represents us. We have no lobbying group. We have no... Uh, national organization. We are the the lost doctors in the street. When I've tried to organize primary care doctors in my own community, I get no response. Primary care doctors are burnt out. They don't trust that anything can ever be done to fix the system. They tend to be more they don't tend to be political organizers. They're working really hard, um, and so yeah, they have they have no voice and and. So, you know, when every other organization has people in Congress talking to the congressmen and women and primary care doctors are absent, you know, this this is the way it's going to be, unfortunately. Sure. Yep. And uh, 
So I guess um, we're we're closing towards the end of the hour, um, which time went by very quickly. But uh, once yeah. again, I want to thank you for this very engaging interview, for your very uh, provocative and I think uh, important book. And, and so I hope our listeners will have enjoyed the interview as well and hope they enjoyed the book if they pick it up. I guess with a couple minutes we have left, uh, maybe you can just uh, tell our listeners where they can uh, go maybe for more information and where they can order your book from and things like that. Sure. Yeah, I have a website. It's called uh, curingmedicare.com, and I do have information about the book. But even more importantly, I have uh, a blog that I that I run um, pretty much weekly. I have a lot of information on there that can help you learn more about your healthcare and and more about what's going on in the whole medical system now. I think I think it can help empower you to um, to become a patient that can take care of yourself. So I encourage everyone yeah, to, to go on there and a lot of information on there. Yeah, and you said it's called curingmedicare.com. Is that the right? Yep, www.curingmedicare.com. Okay, great. Nice yeah, and, nice I and hope, easy. Uh, people will check that out. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's easy to remember, so that's good. Exactly. And uh, Yeah, and again, I want to thank you so much for joining us, uh, for sharing your insights and experience. Um, with our listeners tonight and uh, um, so once again thank you for being here and again for our listeners I hope you enjoyed the show and hope everybody has a great weekend as well but thank you again Andy for for sharing your time with us thanks so much Keith and luck in Arizona thank you I appreciate that thank you so much have a good night okay take care bye-bye